listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Inside Mental Health podcast, formerly the Psych Central podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and I want to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. You can save 10% and get a week free by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. Calling into the show today, we have Dr. Mark Mayfield. Dr. Mayfield has professional experience in treating and addressing anxiety, depression, PTSD, substance abuse, domestic violence, self-injury, and suicide. He recently launched his book titled Help, My Teen is Self-Injuring, a crisis manual for parents, which addresses his own suicide survival story, self-injury, and how to help your child who might be going through this. Dr. Mayfield, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And we appreciate you being here. Now, self-injury, much like suicide, is very misunderstood, with many people believing that because this is something that someone does to themselves, that it is not a disorder or an illness process at all, but rather a choice that somebody is making. Now, this couldn't be further from the truth, correct? Yeah, I think it's such a complex topic. So there's a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it is attention-seeking. And that's very far and few between. Most of the time, it's a coping mechanism of a deeper issue. Now, when you say it's a coping mechanism, I I think that many people would hear that and they think, wait a minute, harming yourself is a coping mechanism. I understand why people might cock their head to the side and think, what kind of a coping mechanism is self-injury? Well, Gay, let me give, can I give you a definition and that might help a little bit? Yeah. I I say that self-injury is a deliberate and intentional self-induced, non-lethal act of bodily harm, which is done to reduce, avoid, and or communicate mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual distress. I think the key word there is it reduces some sort of stress. Is this an example of the thing that is happening in the person's life is actually worse than self-injury? And maybe the reason that people don't understand it is because in our lives or in their lives, they see self-injury as really bad, but in the person who is using this as a coping skill, it's actually, I don't want to say a better choice, but it's its helping alleviate something. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't, maybe not a better choice, but it's an effective choice. What self-injury does in that moment is it allows the individual to control and modulate their pain. And so when you said that the pain outside or the struggle outside seems bigger and is more detrimental or hard than the actual self-injury. You're very right in that. And a lot of times individuals that are choosing self-harm as a coping mechanism, it's a release. It's a, I can't control what's going on around me, but I can control my own pain through self-injury. So it's like almost like a pressure cooker type of thing where it builds the outside stuff is building and building and there's no way to release it. And when somebody self-injures, it releases, but it also engages the endorphin dopamine receptors in the brain, and it creates this almost peaceful high. And again, for people listening from the outside in, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you're in the mix of it with somebody. Dr. Mayfield, is is everyone who self-injures suicidal? That is a big myth. And I think this is where, in some ways, we have to throw uh, logic out the door because logically it would make sense that if I'm cutting myself, I want to die. But individuals who self-injure don't set out to be suicidal, but individuals who self-injure have a higher chance of suicidal ideation in the long run, whether it be passive suicide ideation or active 
most of the time it's it's passive in that they're searching for uh, the bigger high or the deeper cut and they unintentionally create problems for themselves from a suicidal standpoint. And so I think one of the big things we need to understand is that immediately somebody that's self-injuring is not going to be suicidal, but we should assess for suicide. When we talk about the stigma surrounding self-injury, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention the stereotype of a self-injurer is this white middle-class teenager, most often like a white adolescent girl. Mm-hmm. Is this accurate? I think that stereotype was pretty accurate in the 80s and 90s. In the 1980s, it, you know, there was a reported 400 per 100,000 participated in self-injury. Toward the end of the 80s, that was up to 750 per 100,000. In the early 2000s, that jumped to uh, 1,400 per 100,000. So a 350% growth rate in 20 years. It used to be that stereotype of that the white teenage girl. But now we're finding that it is across the board, uh, across demographic, across age, across gender. And it's just a mind-boggling how much it has jumped. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's not an easy demographic to pinpoint anymore. I think it's important to point out that even if that stereotype were true, that it is often white adolescent young ladies, it, it who cares? Right, sure. Who cares if something only impacts one? So it, it's sort of interesting that as a society, we're like, oh, we can ignore it. It's, it's white teenage girls. I'm like, well, well, wait a minute. You, We've just established that this serious thing is happening to this group of people and you've decided that it's easy to ignore. And I don't even know if you know the answer to this next question. I just think that it's interesting. Why is that? Why are we looking for reasons, we as a society, looking for reasons to ignore people who self-injure? I think we don't want it to be our problem for a couple of reasons. One, we don't know how to respond. And there's a fear behind responding wrong or don't know how, what to say or how to say it. And then two, I think a lot of it is that we are so busy with our own struggles in our own lives that we don't want to be sucked into somebody else's problems. If we made mental health and even self-injury a communal problem where we all were coming together for the solution, that would be a whole different ballgame. Now, self-injury is often compared to eating disorders, which, while better understood than self-injury, still has a lot of myths and misinformation associated with it. And the eating disorder that it is most often compared to is anorexia. Is this an accurate comparison, or are they just so different that you don't even understand why people are conflating the two? We need to understand that there is a a spectrum of self-injury. On one end, there's the overt direct active self-injury, right? I'm going to cut, I'm going to burn or punch. I'm going to do it. I'm going to hide it so that people don't see it. My cuts are going to get deeper and deeper. That's the overt. And a high lethality on the overt side is when cuts get more deeper or in more precarious places, or they engage in self-injury while on drugs or those kinds of things. That's high lethality. But on the subtle side of the indirect or passive side, We have things like speeding down the highway without a seatbelt. That's considered self-injurious behavior, but it's low lethality. And then there's on the high lethality, subtle side or indirect side is eating disorders, is anorexia. Eating disorders are a form of self-injury and a form of passive self-injury and a form of passive suicide, in my opinion. And I might have people disagree with me on that one, but in my research, that's what I've found. Let's talk about your research for a moment. Do you have any indication or has your research uncovered any reason that people self-injure? 
I think it's very complex. And I'm glad that you asked that question because from the outside looking in, we're like, why are you hurting yourself? It makes no sense to me. But if we look, and I call this looking behind the veil, what's going on behind the things that we aren't seeing, it's up the internal processes. A lot of it has to do with a complex cocktail of insecure attachment, imprinting. Maybe they don't have a safe place to return to. The idea of not being seen, soothed, and safe. They don't have a place that they can go to just to be themselves. The contributors to self-injury can be uh, the fact that they don't have a place where they feel listened to and or loved. And so behind the veil can be, are they being bullied You know, at school? How are their emotional intelligences? Are they able to pinpoint why they are feeling the way they're feeling? A lot of teenagers have these big expressive emotions that they can't put a voice to. And so it becomes overwhelming. But I think a lot of it too, and I'm, I'm going to make a statement here that might rub people the wrong way, but I think a lot of it is misdiagnoses. I think a lot of times we get very structured in our diagnoses. And a lot of times I find that kids that are self-injuring are very intelligent in their sensual expressions, meaning their five senses. Uh, so sensory processing stuff, emotional intelligence, meaning that they're, they're picking up on a lot of people's emotions around them and it's overwhelming. And then there's the intellectual piece too. But we look at it from a medical model versus maybe a different framework. I think it's important that our listeners understand how complicated this is. And something this complicated, it needs intervention, right? It, it needs medical intervention. It's, it's not something that we can handle for our loved ones, especially in the case of, of adolescents or teenagers. I know that sometimes we have this, well, I'm just going to order them to stop it. Well, I'm going to put my foot down or I'm going to tell them that, that this is nonsense behavior and they need to quit it. But it's so much more complicated than that. And I, I think one of the reasons that self-injury maybe has become so pervasive is because people are trying to handle it on their own, people that frankly shouldn't be. Yes. I think there's definitely well-meaning people out there. I really do believe that you need to educate yourself. And that's part of the reason I wrote this book in a layperson's framework and why I've made it free, a free download, because I want everybody to access it. It's important then to know your resources in your community there's a lot of different resources out there you can search counselors on, but to find a professional that has some understanding and you find somebody that you think would be a good fit for your teenager, there's not a whole lot of good resources for the lay person. And so it becomes this mysterious struggle that a lot of parents, you know, a lot of community members don't know how to respond to. And a lot of times we have those responses that are shame-inducing, judgmental, or placating because there's just that lack of understanding. Should the loved ones of people who self-injure get any sort of therapy or treatment or education? Because it really seems like a theme running through this conversation is that the well-intentioned standers by are, are doing a lot of damage. Yes, obviously. I hope it's not intentional damage, but you're right. And I do think one of the things that require not require, but really strongly suggest of my clients that I'm working with a teenager of uh, you know, self-injuring, that the parents are seeing a counselor at least once or twice a month for that support. Or at least we talk about what their support group looks like. Do they have a group of friends, neighbors? Are they a part of a faith community where they can receive some support? Because they shouldn't be doing this on their own. And I will say this to parents. Parents, if you are struggling with a teen that is self-injuring, it does not make you a bad parent. And I think there's a lot of shame that goes in with individual parents that have a child that is struggling with mental illness or working through self-injury. 
that somehow they've dropped the ball or they've made mistakes. And I want to free them of that. Even if you have, it's not your fault. What you do from this point on is really important. But to, to keep it hidden or to keep it secretive because you feel like you're going to be judged is not, not a good reason. Thank you, Dr. Mayfield, for saying that. I, I know that oftentimes people don't realize that they can influence the outcome. Folks can influence the outcome either way. So we want to make sure that people have the education and the resources that they need to ensure the most positive of influencing. Correct. And I think the greatest form of strength is recognizing your weakness and asking for help. We'll be back in a minute after we hear from our sponsors. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know managing my mental health and a busy recording schedule seemed impossible until I found BetterHelp Online Therapy. They can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. Just visit betterhelp.com slash psychcentral to save 10% and get a week free. That's betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. Join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. We're back discussing self-injury with Dr. Mark Mayfield. There's this persistent myth that everybody who self-injures is just looking for attention. It's attention-seeking. Mm-hmm. And what I've discovered in, again, a, a Google search, I, <laughs> I want to be clear that you're the expert, is that many people who self-injure are very adept at hiding it well, frankly, under under their clothing, or choosing self-injury methods that aren't noticeable. Why do you think this attention-seeking myth persists when even a 10-minute Google search shows that this is, frankly, just not even based in any sort of reality? I think a lot of it is uh, misunderstanding. So we're sitting here and talking about this, there's probably people listening going, like, I still don't understand why somebody would hurt themselves to feel better. Like, that doesn't make any sense. If we leave it at that statement, then the next logical step is they must be doing it for attention. And my response to that is whether or not they're doing it for attention, they're trying to communicate a need that is not being met right now. Take a step aside from self-injury. And when I work with families and parents, and they're telling me that their kid is acting out, and all they're doing is trying to fight the acting out, I keep on telling them that you're missing the point. The acting out is trying to communicate a need, and the only way they can communicate that need is through the acting out. And so we as adults, as parents, need to take a step back and go, okay, what need is not being met in this teenager that is causing them to act out in this way? And we focus less on the behavior and more on on the need. I think this is the same for self-injury. And this is where I talk a lot about in the book, how do we respond to somebody that's self-injuring? There's a lot of bad ways that we can respond. And one of them is just telling, well, you're just doing it for attention. If we do that, what tends to happen is it becomes more subversive and it becomes more hidden and in turn becomes more dangerous. You've alluded to some of the wrong ways to respond to self-injury. Let's educate people on the correct way to respond to self-injury. If somebody that, that you know and love and care about is self-injuring, how should you intercede? Let me answer that in a roundabout way. I think the first way is recognizing what questions shouldn't we ask. One of them is just saying, you know, why can't you just stop? You know, or what were you thinking? Or what's wrong with you? Do you need to be on medication? Or saying something like, I know exactly how you feel, or can I see your scars? I think those are all inappropriate ways to respond because it takes away from the actual struggle. If people want to jumpstart the process with questions, I think, first of all, the person that is asking the questions needs to be in a place of curiosity. 
and not judgment. And a lot of times when we deal with self-injury, it really makes people squeamish because it has to do with blood or injury. And that scares some people. So making sure that you're in control of your breathing and your heart rate, and you're not overreacting when you're sitting with this individual. But some of the questions that I really encourage parents that I work with to ask and those that I work with in the community is asking the question, in what ways does your self-injury benefit you? So being curious of going, okay, why are you choosing this behavior? One of my favorite questions is to ask if your scars could talk, what would they say? And it's giving a voice to the individual in that moment. The next question I'd like to ask is if I, as your parent, could make one small change to help you overcome this self-injury, what would that be? And again, it empowers the individual to develop a voice. And then the the big question is often people who self-injure use this to cope mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. What distress are you trying to cope with that you're not able to communicate right now? Let's look at this from the perspective of the person who is self-injuring for a moment. What can they do to help themselves? What is their option to move past this? How should they advocate on their own behalf? One of the common threads with individuals that self-injure is lack of a voice, uh, lack of being seen or understood. Oftentimes they feel stuck, like really stuck. I think the big piece is developing the courage to find a trusted adult that they can confide in. I think a lot of times our teenagers will try to confide in other teenagers. That can be good at times, but it can also be bad. The teenage frontal cortex is not developed fully. And so that part of the brain, the higher order part of the brain needs a trusted adult to help guide it. So you can find some safety in a friend, but ultimately you're going to need to find a trusted adult to confide in and begin to figure out the process of replacing that coping mechanism with a different one. I often have parents come in and say, I'm just going to make them stop. And I'm like, if you make them stop, they don't have anything to replace it with. The actual self-injury could get even more dangerous and tip towards suicidal reaction. And so what we do is we try to titrate off of it in a place that is giving them a a replacement coping mechanism that can replace the self-injury. I imagine that the advice for adults is similar. The trusted adult is just your peer. Is it the same treatment for adults as as adolescents? It can be because I think a lot of times, I'm not sure if you've talked about this on previous podcasts, when we have trauma, when we have things happen to us, we have arrested development. And a lot of times we get stuck in our teenage years emotionally or cognitively from a, a, a traumatic event. And when I work with adults that are self-injuring, a lot of times they're stuck in those teenage mindsets. There's some similarities in that. And I think there's also some differences you know, in the development of a treatment plan and of the ability to engage in healthy coping skills. So now let's talk about this from the perspective of a provider like yourself. You're sitting across from a patient that the patient has, has disclosed that they're self-injuring, they're ready to do something about it. What do you do? How do you develop and define and work with somebody who's self-injuring to get them to the point where they no longer need to do so? Each individual that comes into my office that I've worked with has had a, a different treatment plan or a different roadmap to success. A lot of it is really figuring out what need, what core longing is not being met or has been traumatized that they're trying to cope with. What are they trying to express in their self-injury? As I work with teenagers through this, each treatment plan is going to look differently. The, The big piece of it is for the first time in their life, possibly, they're being seen, they're being valued, they're being known, uh, and they're being loved. 
in a way that they've never been before. And so that counseling therapeutic relationship in and of itself becomes healing. And then we collaboratively figure out ways to engage in more beneficial behaviors and coping skills. For teens that I'm working with, it could be anywhere from six months to a year of consistent counseling to figure out a transition and a way to move away from it. In a lot of ways, because of the dopamine and endorphin receptors that are engaged in the self-injury process, it has the potential to become addicting. So not only are we working with combating the coping mechanism, but we're also combating probably a low-level addiction there as well. So it does become complex as we work to find a way out. Do people who self-injure get better? Is this something that people recover from? Oh, 100%. Yes, absolutely. I use the thirds principle when I talk with clients when I do an intake. And I usually say one third of my clients have these huge aha moments, life changes on a dime, everything's great. We have these big changes. A third of my clients have small changes that we have to pause every six, eight weeks and look back and see how they've snowballed into big changes. And then a third of my clients don't change at all. And I ask the client, tell me, what do you think the factor, the reason change happens? And we sit with that for a little bit. And the big part of it is the willingness and the desire to change. When a client has made their mind up that they are going to change, I would say, and my people disagree with me, I would say that's 75 to 80% of the battle right there, the willingness to change. And that's why therapy will work is if you have people that are partnered and want to change. And a third of clients come in because of their world is falling apart or they've been told they have to go to counseling and that kind of stuff and they've not made their mind up. And that's where change doesn't happen. When I work with patients and clients that are ready, their world is falling apart. They don't want this to be the way it is anymore. They're tired of it. They want a difference. Then we have that partnership that we can begin to work our way out, develop change and change becomes lasting. Is there any message of hope or, or positivity that you would like to give to people who love somebody who's self-injuring or somebody who's self-injuring themselves? The, the people that are walking with somebody that's self-injuring, I just want to validate the fact that it is scary. And this is something that is not easy to walk through. But I will encourage that if you take the mindset of wanting to understand the curiosity piece, you've got to support yourself outside of your family to process with and to freak out with. Honestly, it's okay to freak out, but don't do it in front of your individual that is self-injuring. The process and, and the patience of being in relationship with this individual and wanting to see them for who they are and their struggles, it will get better, but it will take time. And I think for those that are self-injuring, it's important to know that they're not alone, that there are people out there that, that want to help, that understand the need for support and engagement and want to hear their stories and want to walk with them through it and that this can be different. It can change and it will get better. Dr. Mayfield, thank you so much for being here. Now, your most recent book is Help My Teen is Self-Injuring, a Crisis Manual for Parents. Where can we find that and where can people find you? Yeah, they can find it on my website, drmayfield.com. It's a free download. And then my second book, The Loneliness Epidemic, will be out in major bookstores and Amazon and stuff next September. You can also follow me on Instagram at, at the Dr. Mayfield or on Facebook at the Dr. Mayfield. And then we also have a podcast called Candid Conversations with Dr. Mayfield on Spotify and uh, Google Play and Apple uh, iTunes. Thank you so much, Dr. Mayfield, for being here. It's really appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks everybody for tuning in. My name is Gabe Howard and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations, which is of course available on Amazon.com or you can get signed copies for less money, including free Psych Central podcast swag just by jumping over to GabeHoward.com. Please, wherever you downloaded the podcast, subscribe. That way you don't miss a single episode. Also, rate, rank, and review. Tell people why they should listen as well. We'll see everyone next week. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Learn more about Gabe Howard at gabehoward.com. Thank you for listening. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.